0: So this morning I want to start with a question. If this was full and you bumped into me, what would come out of it? How do you know what's in this? Iced coffee. He's right. He's right. If it was full, whatever was in here is what would come out of here, right? If it was coffee, iced coffee, water, iced water, um, I don't know, what else? Hot chocolate, iced chocolate, I don't know. Whatever's in here is what's going to come out of here. When I'm jostled, when I'm shaken, we are the same, right? When we're jostled or shaken... Or bumped into, or trials come, or hardships come. What comes out of us? Whatever we're full of, right? And I know what some of you are full of, but we won't talk about that. How do we respond in the midst of trials? You will respond with whatever you're full of. And today we're going to see two men on trial. We're going to see two men who are facing two different types of trials. And I hope that what we end up seeing is not just what comes out of them and hence what would come out of us, but I hope we see that there is an option here. There's a choice here. And it doesn't necessarily just have to be what we're full of or who we are. We'll get to that near the end. But today we're going to read Matthew chapter 26 verses 57 to 75. We're actually going to finish Matthew 26 today, which took a lot less time than Matthew 24 and 25. Um, And what we're going to see here, we're going to see the trial of Jesus and the denial of Jesus. Of Peter and you could say the trial of Jesus and the denial of Jesus if you wanted to but I didn't so we won't but if you would please stand while we read this incredible passage of scripture this true account of what happened historically recorded for us under the direct inspiration of God the Holy Spirit through the pen of Matthew who had been a tax collector Matthew 26, verses 57 to 75. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none. Though many false witnesses came forward, From now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them for your accent. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Let's pray. Father, help us by the power of your omnipotent Holy Spirit to understand these things and to go out and do them, that you might be glorified, others might be served, and we might be built up. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Verse 57. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. So we left off at the end of last week's passage and message with Jesus being seized by the large crowd sent by the chief priests and the elders, and they were led by Judas, who kissed Jesus to show the man that they were to seize. And the other 11 disciples, who just a little while before had proclaimed that they would die with Jesus, had fled into the night, forsaking their rabbi in order to save their own skins. So we pick up this week with Jesus being led to Caiaphas, the high priest, where, verse 57 says, the scribes and the elders had gathered. Now, let me ask you a question As we move into this, what part of the day is this happening in? It's nighttime, right? So they had finished the Passover meal um, and headed out to the Mount of Olives where Jesus had prayed into the night while his disciples were too sleepy to keep their eyes open. And the fact that it's night is important. As we see these proceedings, because these guys, the chief priests and the elders, who make up what was called the sanhedrin, the ruling board, the ruling um, body for the Jews in both uh, pol- in political, social, justice, and religious matters, this sanhedrin made these decisions they 're about to make several illegal moves in their efforts to condemn Jesus. <clears throat> Going back to God giving the law to the Jews, God has always, had always commanded that His people were to be a fair people and their leaders were to rule and judge in equity and compassion. I read one commentator and I can't remember who it is now, just coming back to my mind. It says the goal of the Sanhedrin, the ruling body, was to preserve life, not to take it. That's how they were to govern. So these chief priests, these elders, this Sanhedrin this governing body of the Jewish people, were to be the embodiment of that equity and compassion that God had called His people to. John MacArthur, explaining the duties of this fair and compassionate judging panel, says it this way, quote, There were three primary things in relation to criminal procedure that the laws of jurisprudence upheld in the Sanhedrin guaranteed to a person. Three things. Number one, public trial. That was one of the things that was supposed to be guaranteed. I continue to read his quote. In other words, there was to be no hidden, secret, clandestine trials. And what do we see in here? Just that. MacArthur goes on to say, "...everything was to be open and exposed so that no one could be framed and railroaded into some kind of execution or some kind of penalty without just trial taking place." The judges were always then under the scrutiny, under scrutiny of the populace and who were able to see and attend, and to some extent at least, know what was going on. And courts today have maintained the same thing. Secondly, MacArthur says, the Sanhedrin guaranteed for anyone brought in on a criminal procedure the right of self-defense. That is, there has to be a defender. There was to be someone who provided a defense for the accused. He had the right to bring in defense of himself in the mouth of other witnesses who could participate in the trial. So that's the second thing. Thirdly, MacArthur finishes, No one could be convicted of anything unless convicted or proven to be guilty by two or three witnesses. End of quote. So those are three necessities for a just, compassionate, God-like trial for somebody. And that's what the Sanhedrin was supposed to be doing. Well, if you take into consideration that it was nighttime and the Sanhedrin had assembled itself in the place, in the palace of the chief priest, this shows that what was happening with Jesus was not fair nor was it compassionate. And we'll get back to them in a minute. Okay? So just know that this is not right. This is a kangaroo court. This is them doing what they want to do, not showing the true justice and compassion of God. We'll just leave that right there. Look at verse 58. We'll get back to them in a minute. And Peter was following him, Jesus, at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest and going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. So here's Peter who had fled into the night with the rest of the disciples after he had cut a servant's ear off and then got rebuked by Jesus for doing so. And remember, after vowing that he would die with Jesus, Jesus had told Peter that Peter would in fact not die with Jesus but would deny him three times before the morning came. Which is further proof that it's still night, by the way. And here we see Peter following Jesus at a distance. He had fled far enough away from the seizing mob to get away, but he circled back and followed to see where they were taking Jesus, but at a distance, a safe distance for his own sake. And his following brings him to the courtyard of the high priest, which is where they'd taken Jesus. And it says that he went inside and sat down with the guards to, quote, see the end. Now that seems odd to me. We see the why of his going in to see the end, but what about the how? How did a disciple of Jesus slip unnoticed into the courtyard of the high priest? I mean, he would have been recognizable, right? Well, as is so often the case, John... Gives us a little more insight here. Look at John 18, 15 to 16. Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did another disciple, which is John's way of saying it was me without mentioning his name. Since that disciple, this other disciple, John, was known to the high priest. He was familiar to him. He was kind of chummy with him. He entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. John did. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, John, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. Okay, So John's kind of an inside factor here. He knows the high priest, he's chummy with him, and he's kind of shifting gears, and he gets Peter inside the courtyard. Aha! So John followed too, and he was known to the high priest, was familiar to these folks at the high priest's palace, so he pulled some strings, got him and Peter into the courtyard. And they are watching to see how all of this shakes out. Now, back to this sham trial that's going on inside. Verses 59 to 61. Now, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none. Though many false witnesses came forward, at last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. Okay, so these fair and compassionate rulers who were to make sure that all of this is on the up and up, were doing what? It says they were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put Him to death. Now where's the fairness? Where's the compassion in that? It's not there, right? What are they full of? They're full of hate. And what's coming out of them right now? Hate, venom. They're seeking false witness that they might put Him to death. How's that for reflecting the justice of God? Yeah, boy. And they have a parade of false witnesses come and go saying one thing or the other. Another gospel says they can't get them to agree. They're saying opposing things, different things. And they've got to have at least two witnesses who agree about something to say yes. Okay, we'll, we'll accept that testimony. And they're having a hard time. Uh, none of these people line up with one another. Okay? Verse 60 says they found none. They found zero evidence, even false evidence that would have made it possible to accomplish their goal of having Jesus put to death. And again, quite a goal. At last, verse 60 says, Two guys... Are at least close in what they say. And they say, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. Now they're referencing Jesus's quote from John 2. This was back at the beginning of Jesus's ministry <clears throat> when he cleansed the temple the first time. If you'll remember, he cleansed the temple twice. Once at the beginning of his ministry and once at the end of his ministry. <clears throat> John records it this way. After Jesus cleanses the temple that first time. Probably three years before this. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking, John says, about the temple of his body. So that's what these guys are talking about. Of course, they're misquoting him. Um, But even then, that isn't exactly worthy of death, I wouldn't think. I mean, if he was talking about the temple, if you destroy this temple, I'll build it up in three days. They'd be going, you're just a nut job. You know, you took us 46 years to build this thing. You're going to do it in three days. Y'all right. Not really death-worthy stuff, I don't think. But they take it, right? He's not exactly worthy of death. But hey, the accusers are getting a little bit antsy. This thing could get out of control really quickly. So now Caiaphas takes these two guys' words and confronts Jesus with them. Now how do you think this is going to go? Verse 62. And the high priest stood up and he said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? So now the big guy in charge, at least in his mind, Caiaphas, the high priest, confronts Jesus. It seems that Jesus isn't in a rush to explain what he actually said and what he meant by those misquoted words. So Caiaphas asks Jesus, Have you no answer to make? To which Jesus is like, What is it that these men testify against you? What's what's he doing? What's Caiaphas trying to do? He's trying to provoke Jesus to say something to defend himself. And he's trying to catch him in a ploy to incriminate himself, seeing as how these fellows had no desire for Jesus to say anything to acquit himself. Caiaphas wasn't hoping that Jesus would say, oh, it was a misunderstanding, that's not what I meant. Or that he would say something that would be like, well, you know, let me show you who I am. Caiaphas is trying to get him to do that type of thing. So what say you, Jesus? Are you going to defend yourself or what? We're about to see what Jesus is full of, aren't we? What about what these guys are saying? Verse 63, But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. So Jesus, confronted with false testimony, misquotation, and a crooked court proceeding, does what? Is he worried? Is he mad? Is he upset? Is he scared? No. Jesus doesn't cry out for justice. Jesus doesn't accuse these guys of not treating him fairly. I like that the verse starts with, but Jesus. In the midst of this chaos and injustice, in the midst of men trying to trap him, in the midst of men accusing him falsely and misquoting him, Jesus remains silent. Boy, there's a lesson to be learned there. We're so full of words but Jesus remained silent. (laughs) So many times, as we've looked over the book of Matthew, he has silenced these men. They come at him with efforts to trap him in his words. He had answered brilliantly time and time again, leaving them to tuck their tails between their legs and leave humiliated, which has led to this. He's done it so many times. He silenced them and humiliated them so many times that now they're plotting on how to kill him for that very reason. And now here, in a perfect opportunity, it would seem to us, for him to justify himself, for him to use that rapier wit to silence them again, Jesus is silent. Why? Because he knows where all of this is leading. And he is actually in control of every moment of it. And this point of the plan, he doesn't have to say anything. He's going to let them spring their trap because that's what has to happen. So here he knows the most expeditious thing he can do is remain silent, and he does. He knows the Word of God. He knows the plan of God. He knows the person of God well enough that he can just stand silent in the face of all of this. And Caiaphas cannot stand it. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Caiaphas is tired of waiting. Caiaphas is tired of being ignored. Time is wasting so he adjures Jesus by the living God to tell them if Jesus really believes that he is the Christ, the Son of God. That word adjure is a fun Greek word. It's exorkizo, E-X-O-R-K-I-Z-O is the transliterated word. And it means to extract an oath from someone. Caiaphas is trying to force Jesus, which is funny enough to say, He's trying to force Jesus to invoke an oath in the name of God that he is, in fact, the Messiah. Because that'd be grounds for a blasphemous accusation. Tell me, by God, that you are God, Caiaphas is saying. So what does Jesus do? Verse 64. Jesus said to him, Jesus speaks now, You have said so. But, I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So Jesus finally speaks and he gives an answer. I adjure you, Caiaphas had said, to tell us if you are the Christ or not. And Jesus' answer, you've said so. <laughs> now that's a little bit cryptic, right? In, in the Greek, it's two words, apon, And it is translated directly as, you say... Or you said, are you the Christ? You say, <laughs> you said it. And that's the same answer Jesus had given Judas when Judas had asked if he was the one who would betray Jesus. You say. So the high priest asks if Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus says, you say. Now I think it's good to remember here that the Jews' idea of the Messiah was different than what Jesus had actually come to fulfill. The Jews were looking for a military leader. So, Caiaphas' question is, was Jesus that Messiah? And the answer to that question is, no. I'm not that Messiah. Was he the true Messiah of God? Yeah, he was. So he answers rather ambiguously, eh, those are your words, basically. But he doesn't stop there. You say... But I tell you, now you see the contrast there? Are you the Christ? I adjure you by God, invoke an oath and tell us whether you're the Christ or not. You say, but I tell you. From now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Are you the Christ, the Son of God? You say, but I say that from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, we've said many times, I, don't, I, I didn't count them, I'll say several times through our journey through Matthew, that Jesus' favorite title for himself was what? Son of man. And that's what he evokes here, right? He calls himself the son of man over and over in Matthew, and... So many times we've looked back at Daniel 7, and hopefully that just triggers that in your head now. When you hear Son of Man, you think of Daniel 7. And we're going to go there again because it fits with Jesus' answer here. Daniel 7, Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him, this Son of Man was given dominion and glory in a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in His kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So Jesus references the Son of Man and He says that from now on, these people accusing Him would see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. These folks would have been steeped in the writings of the Old Testament, including Daniel's prophecies, so they would know exactly what Jesus was referring to. Their minds would go back to Daniel's prophecy with the Son of Man and the clouds of heaven and power and great glory. And while Jesus isn't saying, you'll see me seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven, they surely receive it that way. Look at verse 65. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have heard. Now heard his blasphemy. Uh-oh. Now that response of Jesus elicited a reaction. And what's Caiaphas full of? He's full of rage. After Jesus said that, it says that Caiaphas tore his robes. <laughs> Let me see this whole Kogan thing going on, right? Come on, brother. Blasphemy, brother. <laughs> Tearing the robes was a sign of outrage and or grief in the Jewish culture. It's seen several times in the Old Testament. And as he tears his robe as a sign of outrage and or grief, seems more like outrage than grief to me. As he tears his robe, he says, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. Now we hear the word blasphemy and we're kind of like, Ew, blasphemy, that feels yucky, Right? We kind of recoil in our hearts and minds. But blasphemy to these guys was more than just a little weird. It was an outrage. It was shocking. The word blasphemy here means to speak in a vile manner. To rail at. To speak evil of. And the who that would be spoken vilely of, railed at, and spoken evil of was was God here. They took Jesus' words as a vile reproach against God Himself since Jesus would be equating Himself with God. He has uttered blasphemy, they say, if indeed He isn't God in the flesh. Which, of course, He is, but these guys don't see that and won't receive that from this peasant Nazarene rabbi. Blasphemy! What further witnesses do we need, Caiaphas says. You've now heard his blasphemy. He has condemned himself, which he's not supposed to be able to do, by the way, in their courtroom. But these guys are looking for something anyway. And, and, and in my opinion, what Jesus said isn't blasphemous at all. He's really just quoting a scripture. I mean, He said, from now on, you will see the Son of Man... Seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of glory. Which is true. They will. Regardless of what they believe about Him, they will see that. Jesus didn't say, you're going to see me, the Son of Man, standing in, or sitting at the, at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of glory. Jesus didn't say that. They will see what Daniel saw. And they wouldn't argue with that. But they've implicated Jesus of Nazareth. As saying that he will be at the right hand of power and will come with the clouds, that he is the Son of Man. He is the Messiah. He is the one who will rule over the everlasting kingdom. And Jesus didn't say that exactly, even though it's true. It is Jesus that Daniel saw in his vision, but that doesn't fit into their narrative or achieve their purposes. So they call it blasphemy, and they all agree upon it. So now what? Verse 66. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. So Caiaphas asks what this kangaroo court thinks. What's their judgment? They answered, he deserves death. In bloodthirst, they determined that the best way to stop this blasphemer's mouth is to kill him. It's a death penalty. Well, well then. And here we have a problem again in the way that things are supposed to be done. John MacArthur again, quote, In any case where death was prescribed as the sentence by the Sanhedrin, the execution could not be accomplished until the third day. For example, if today the sentence was rendered, this would be the first day. One whole day tomorrow would be the second day. And not until the morning of the third day could the council reconvene and reaffirm the death sentence and execute the person that same day. And the day in the middle was a day to be sure that all the evidence was in and there was no further need for testimony. And by the way, MacArthur says, the witnesses who witnessed against the person which brought about the death penalty were the ones who had to cast the first stone in the execution. End of quote. So technically, they should have waited until the third day to execute him. And these two guys that came forward with this testimony about him raising up the temple in three days, they were supposed to be the first two guys to throw the first two stones. Now, is that how it shook out? Now, we know that in a few hours, the Romans are going to hang Jesus on the cross. So this court's not doing their deal legally. So verses 67 and 68 show the aftermath of the verdict. <clears throat> Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him saying, prophesy to us you Christ. Who is it that struck you? You want to know what man thinks about God? There it is. In our natural unredeemed state, this is what we think about God. All of us. And what a picture. To spit in one's face was the ultimate abasement. It was to exhibit both superiority of oneself and disgust at the one spit upon. Ever been spit in the face? Anybody ever spit in your face? Did you say, thank you sir, may I have another? No. They're elevating themselves and showing disdain for him. Somebody spits in your face, they are meaning to be as bad as they can be. And that's what's going on here. But that's not all. They also struck him, they hit him. Struck would imply hitting with a fist. And it says that some slapped him, which is an open-handed hitting. Spitting on, hitting and slapping the Son of God. God in the flesh. And then mocking him, telling him to prophesy to them, to tell them who it was that struck him. And if you read Mark's account of this, he lets us know in his gospel that they had blindfolded him at this point. So that makes a little more sense of them saying, tell us who it was that hit you. So that adds to the cruelty a little more. And their name for him, you Christ, making it clear that he wasn't their Christ. They imply that he says he is the Christ, but he's really not. Nothing but pure contempt and hatred. That's what's inside these folks. And that's what's coming out. And that's where all natural men stand who do not know nor confess Jesus as God in the flesh. You're like, I don't hate him. Listen to me. You can't play nice with Jesus if he's not your Lord. You're going to hate him. No, I don't hate him. You're going to hate him. You have to elevate yourself above him. Your only option is to spit in his face with your disbelief and belittle him as you exalt yourself. They are proof of that because sinners sin. That's all they can do. And we look at contempt with these guys and we shake our heads and we say, I can't believe they would do that to Jesus. But be careful. Because it turns out there's not much difference in how sinners react and how the saints react, right? Let's get back to Peter, the leader of the disciples of Jesus in verses 69 and 70. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard And a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I I, 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 I know what you mean. We we forgot about Peter, didn't we? We got busy in, in in the palace and we forgot about the courtyard. So here sits Peter, out in the courtyard of the high priest. And as he sits there, a servant girl. Now notice those two words. How much power would a servant girl have in first century Palestine? She was the lowest of the low. Women weren't held in high regard. Which, by the way, let me just say this, nobody in history did more to exalt women than Jesus Christ. Nobody. That doesn't have anything to do with this. But there it is. So this servant girl... The lowest of the low comes up to Peter. And she says, you also, you, you, I saw you with Jesus the Galilean, that guy in there that they're they're having this trial against. She recognizes Peter as one who had been with Jesus. She'd seen him before and she points him out. But what does Peter do? What's Peter full of at this point? I know. If he'd had a sword, he might try to kill her. We've already seen him capable of that, right? Or maybe maybe he's going to do the right thing and just stick his chest out and say, "Yes, ma'am, I am his disciple." He's a big burly fisherman; surely he can handle a little servant girl, right? <laughs> but he denied it before them all, saying, I, "I I I don't know what you mean." Which is a good nondescript answer. He didn't deny it necessarily, even though he did deny it. We were laughing. I won't point out who it was, one of our kids. We ask him a question. Instead of answering the question, they raise the pitch of their voice and ask the question. Did you do this? Who would do that? Is that an answer? <laughs> That's a good way to just slough it off. Hey, let's move on to something else. What color are we painting here? Peter doesn't really answer the question. You were with him. You were with Jesus. I don't know what you mean. (laughs) It's just a good nondescript answer. It's a lot of words to pretty much say, huh? Just dodging the question. So he just heads out to get away from that crowd. But verses 71, 72. And when he went out to the entrance, so you see him, he's going out back to the entrance. Another servant girl saw him and and she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. So a different servant girl points him out and says, hey, hey, he was with Jesus. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. What's Peter full of? So he goes to the courtyard entrance, but doggone it if another servant girl doesn't confront him. And she says to those standing around there, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. Hard to not be recognized if you're the lead disciple of the most famous rabbi in the world at the time. But Peter wants to blend in. He doesn't want to be singled out. Boy, we hate to be singled out, don't we? We hate to be caught on the carpet for anything. Why? Because he's scared to death. So here he doesn't casually try to escape the accusation, but instead to everybody who will listen, I do not know that man. Peter says, and Matthew says that Peter said this with an oath. Now remember they tried to get Jesus to invoke an oath to tell him that he was the Christ. They don't try to invoke it out of Peter, but it comes out of him. I'm telling you, I promise. Pinky promise. I swear. I swear. I don't know that man. An oath was added for emphasis to make sure you make sure everybody believes you. Peter's doubling down and trying to distance himself from his Lord in the heat of the moment. Ever been there? And his denials are just getting stronger. we got one more to see in the progression, 73 and 74. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. <clears throat> now it's not just one little girl, but the bystanders came up. Bystanders, plural. And they are certain that Peter is one of Jesus' men because his accent is northern Galilean. Now they're down south in Judea and Jerusalem, And his accent gives him away. You're from up north. You're one of those Galilean disciples of that Nazarene in there. You can't hide it. You're not one of us. You're one of his. And Peter's reaction? The passage says that he began to invoke a curse and to swear. Commentator Craig Bloomberg says this to help explain this exchange. Quote, With verse 74 comes the strongest denial yet. Peter again takes an oath, but also calls down curses. The NIV interprets the object of this verb to be himself, but it could even be taken to be Jesus. He may be calling down curses on Jesus. Katathematizion, I don't think that's right, but trust me, comes from the same root as anathematize, asking God to punish him or Christ if he is lying, end of quote. If I'm lying, I'm dying, Peter says. I don't know the man! No more word games, no more vagueness. Damn it, leave me alone, I don't know that cursed man! And as the words leave his lips for that third denial, cock-a-doodle-doo. do. uh oh And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. As that rooster crows, Peter remembers that Jesus had said that he would deny him three times before that particular rooster crowed that particular crow. But Luke shows us something a little more particular. Look at Luke 22, 61 and 62. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Oh man, how awful. Peter curses and denies. Then Jesus, who obviously, according to Luke, was close enough at that time to turn and look at Peter. I don't know the man! And he runs out and he weeps bitterly. Peter curses and denies Jesus. Jesus looks at him. Then Peter remembers what Jesus had said. And both Matthew and Luke say, and he went out and wept bitterly. And that look... mm, Was he mad, scared, laughing? I told you so. I don't think so. I think Jesus just looked at him. And Peter was like, oh, no. Oh, no. What have I done? What? Oh, no. And he went out and wept bitter tears of shame, regret, sorrow, and pain. He who had been so bold. He who had been so sure of himself, reduced to denying and cursing by two powerless servant girls and an onlooking crowd. Jesus had stood stoic and quiet as he was falsely accused and condemned before the power brokers of the day. Peter had brashly lied and tried to acquit himself vociferously before those who had no power or place in the grand scheme of things. Peter had been as unchristlike as he could have possibly been. And now the realization of that sets in, and he is devastated. Understandably so. And so we leave off today with Jesus condemned to death, Peter running away weeping after fulfilling the prophecy of Jesus that Peter would deny him. And we've got the Sanhedrin, Jesus, and Peter. And we've seen what was in every single one of them. Now the question is, what about me? What about us? What are we full of? We're going to look at it, application through three D's. Demean, D-E-M-E-A-N, demean. Deny and deity. Demean. This is what the chief priests and the elders and the false witnesses did. They demeaned Jesus. And this is what unbelievers do. In our passage today, they lied about Jesus. They piled up false evidence against him. They proved that he wasn't who he said he was. They mocked and they jeered at him. They spit in his face. And if you are an unbeliever here or listening to me today, you are doing the same thing. And you can try to justify yourself in any way that you want to try to justify yourself, And you are lying. You are misrepresenting Christ. You are spitting in Christ's face. And I think it's interesting to note that Jesus stood silent before those people. No word from God there. John MacArthur again. In the Jewish trial of Jesus Christ, and here's the key point, they violated every single law of justice and jurisprudence known to them. They violated every single one of them willfully so that the trial of Jesus Christ is the most unjust trial in human history. It has to be for this court condemned to death the only true innocent person who ever lived. And if you are an unbeliever, you are doing the exact same Thing, You are condemning Jesus Christ as the most unjust trial in human history. And you are doing it willfully. The evidence is there. And you're twisting it to fit your narrative. Because that's what sinners do. That's what they're full of. And that's what comes out of them when they are jostled by Jesus Christ himself. Psalm 2, 1-3, through three. why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth, put your name in there if you're a believer. You don't have to be a king of the earth. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He ain't going to control me. He ain't going to dictate to me who I'm supposed to be and what I'm supposed to do. He's not the boss of me. He's a false, a phony, a liar. Out of my face, Jesus. Unbelieving people have put Jesus on trial and found him to be not who he says he is. And they raised themselves up to a place above him. They must burst any bonds that God would put upon them in their minds. They must cast away the cords that they feel are on them from their maker. And they will be their own Lord. So that's what unbelievers do. They demean. What about believers? Uh Uh-oh. We deny Jesus. How easy and how often do followers of Jesus deny Him? Far too easily and far too often in my life, for sure. And for what reasons? Well, Peter did so out of fear, out of a desire for comfort, out of a need to fit in, and who knows what else was going on in his head and heart. But now note this. Now Peter did that. We do that. And what was Peter's response after he did that? He didn't spit in Jesus' face. It says he went out and he wept bitterly. He didn't have a fresh word from God spoken to him. He remembered the old word that Jesus had said before the rooster crows. You'll deny me three times. And all Jesus had to do was look at him. And he went out and he wept bitterly. For the believer who so often does deny their Lord, my Lord, we remember the words of Jesus and those words bring conviction. In our denial, the word of God comes to mind to produce godly grief and godly sorrow for what we just did. And it is all of us as believers. You say, well, I've never like cussed and said, Jesus, no, I never. How many times have you not done the right thing when you knew it was the right thing to do because you just might stand out? Listen, the world is increasingly hostile to the word of God. How easy is it going to be to read your Bible in your private place and never bring it out into the public square? You know what you're doing? You're denying Jesus. Jesus. Now you 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 go to church, don't you? Yeah. Is blank a sin? Then Uh, You don't have to call it sin. I mean, you know, we've we've kind of advanced beyond that as a culture. You know, we accept everybody. We love everybody. That's denying Jesus. That's denying the lordship of Christ. That's denying that sin is sin according to the definition of God. Let's try it again. Is blank sin? The Bible clearly condemns that as sin, yes. No, oh, so you're hateful. I don't feel like I'm being hateful. I don't, I'm not trying to come across as hateful. So God's hateful. The Bible's hateful. No. The Bible clearly says that God extends grace and will give mercy. We'll get to that in a minute. Yeah, whatever. You hate blank people. No, I don't. I love them and I want to see them come to repentance and faith in Christ. Oh, so you're arrogant. You think you've got it all figured out? No, I know I don't have it all figured out. I deny my Lord every day. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, Paul says in Romans 7, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Hopefully, that's our response as believers to denying our Lord. We know that we're full of sin. We know that we fall short. We know that we want to blend in. We don't want to cause too much of a ruckus. We don't want to bring persecution on ourselves. We don't want to seem hateful. And hopefully when we deny Christ in these times, and we do, Jesus told Peter he was going to. Hopefully we feel wretched about it. Demean, deny, deity. How does Christ respond in these situations? Jesus had predicted all of this and is in firm control as those who don't believe in Him demean Him. And Jesus is in control even as those who do believe in Him deny Him. The actions of all men, believers and unbelievers, only serve to prove not disprove Christ's deity. We had read Psalm 2. Let me read that again. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Watch how God responds to that. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Listen to me, sinner. Wrath is coming. If you do not repent of your sin and place your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ for the salvation from your sins, you stand guilty before the judge of all the earth. And all that waits for you is wrath. As you struggle against the will of God, the Lord of heaven laughs and says, My king is set. Try to shake off your bonds. It is a futile fight that you are fighting. And the only thing you have at the end of the road is is wrath. And I don't apologize for saying that. trying to scare me into believing in Jesus? Absolutely I am. Because that's what the word of God says. Wrath is coming upon the sons of disobedience. And if you continue in your defiance toward God, wrath is coming upon you in eternity future. What about believers? How does God respond? How does Christ respond when believers deny him? Watch this. Before Peter denied Jesus, Luke 22. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter's denial was in the plan of God and Jesus had prayed for him our great intercessor had prayed for him and thus our great intercessor prays for us that after we deny him that we might turn again and that we might strengthen each other even after we sin even after we deny Jesus what about that Romans passage John kind of stole some of my thunder earlier. So I find it to be a law, Paul had said, that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, says the believer, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am! Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself, I myself, serve the law of God with my mind but with my flesh. I serve the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Believer, if that doesn't make you want to jump up and run around this room and scream at the top of your lungs, something is wrong. I serve the law of God with my mind but I serve the law of sin with my flesh. And there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are serving the law of sin with their flesh if they are in Christ Jesus. That's how the deity responds to my denying him as a believer. There's no condemnation left, there's no wrath left for me as a believer. Because I have been placed in Christ and it's always now. So there's never any more condemnation in store for the believers who trust in Jesus Christ for their salvation. Even as they serve the law of sin with their flesh. Your sin is not okay, believer. Your denying is not okay. But you've been forgiven of it. Peter had been forgiven of it before he ever did it. And we see at the end of John that Jesus comes and he reinstates Peter and he lays Peter's heart bare. Do you love me, Peter? You know I love you. Do you love me, Peter? You know I love you. Do you love me, Peter? You know all things, Lord. Then go feed my sheep. (laughs) For the unbeliever, there is a call to repentance from God. To the believer, there is power for repentance from God. I'll finish with this, and y'all have heard me say this recently. Recently. Isaiah 55, 6-9. to Whether you are an unbeliever or a believer this morning, hear the words of God. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he, the Lord, may have compassion on him, the unrighteous man. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts, says the Lord of hosts. He could never forgive me. God says, oh, my ways are not your ways. You don't know where I've been. He does, and he says, my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. And he loves to show Compassion. He loves to abundantly pardon. We ain't like that. We ain't full of stuff like that. But God is. And when we bump into Him with whether it's our demeaning or our denying, what comes out of Him is a call to repentance. Compassion. Pardon. Ways that aren't our ways, thoughts that aren't our thoughts. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. This morning, unbeliever, believer, the call of God is come. Receive compassion, come. Receive pardon so that the wrath will not fall upon you, unbeliever. So that the guilt and shame and blame that you feel, believer, can be removed from you. And you can stand face to face with God. When I'm tempted to despair. And I see and feel that guilt within. What do I do? Believer. Upward I'll look and see him there. Who made an end of all my sin. And unbeliever. He can make an end to all of your sin as well. Let's pray. Father, you condemn the demeaning unbelievers. You correct the denying believers. And you call all of them to come to you to receive compassion and abundant pardon. This moment, God, will you in your all-powerfulness convict sinners and show them their need of a Savior. And show them Jesus as sufficient to be that Savior. To remove the wrath from them. And God, for us believers whom you have called out of darkness into marvelous light by your doing, not our own, we haven't figured it out. We're not smarter or better than anybody. We're sinners saved by grace. Would you show us that you love to abundantly pardon us? You love to show us compassion in the midst of our sins. God, would you show us all what we need to see this morning? And may you get the glory for it demeanors, deniers, in the presence of deity. May you get all the glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction? Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. Listen, church, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And all God's people said, amen. If you want to hang out and talk, please do so outside. We will love you better out there.